Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church, and I just want to welcome you to this next installment in our series entitled, Who is Jesus? Or Jesus, who is he? We want to answer that question, uh, give you another answer to that question today, as we've done every week in this series, and today's answer is found on an outline that's inside your bulletin. The answer for today is this. It's from the last chapter of Luke. We've been using Luke's gospel to answer that question over and over again, and today it's from the last chapter of Luke, and our answer today is this, that Jesus is the only person the only person who's conquered death. He is. He's the only person. Everyone else has died who's ever lived on this earth and passed away. Only one person's ever come back from the dead, and that's Jesus. And so we honor him above all others, and his name is above every other name, and we worship him for that reason. Luke makes a big deal out of Jesus' resurrection, easy for me to say, Uh, and today I'd like to share with you why. Uh, Luke was faithful in recording what had happened in the life and times of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, and his resurrection. And today, I'd like to talk with you about why that matters. If you need a pen, by the way, to fill in the blanks as we go along, we've got some ushers that will be coming up and down the aisles, and they'll be glad to pass a pen to you to fill in the blanks and take some notes. You'll see a lot of scriptures here, and in particular, one story from the end of Luke's gospel of how Jesus appeared to two of his followers as they were taking a road trip. And today, I want to talk with you about why that's important. Let me have a word of prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, I thank you for Luke, and I thank you that he faithfully recorded what you had him write down about the life and times of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we can understand who Jesus is and why his resurrection matters. And I pray that, Lord, today you would seal that in our hearts and make it abundantly clear how central to our faith the resurrection must be. I pray that you'll speak, Lord, and move me out of the way and teach us what we need to know from your word. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the only person who ever conquered death. Amen. Well, on Easter Sunday morning, this is point one from your outline, it wasn't clear to most people what had happened to Jesus. If you get to the last chapter of Luke, you'll find that he records that Jesus, uh, on Easter Sunday morning, some women who had followed Jesus went to his tomb, and he wasn't there. Some angels appeared to them and told them that they shouldn't look for the living among the dead, and they went back to tell the disciples, and the disciples had a hard time believing it, as you and I would too. In fact, as we get on a little further on that Easter Sunday, we find that two of Jesus' followers who were part of the group that had followed Jesus' ministry and had been hoping that he was the Messiah to save Israel, um, they were talking on their way to a place where they were staying, outside of Jerusalem, a little community called Emmaus. They would have been staying there during the Passover celebration, and they were walking on their way to their lodging. And here's what happened. Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Now, if that seems odd to you, I want to tell you some of the best ways to get uh, people to think through something is to ask them a question when they're not expecting it. And also to get a candid answer, it's nice if people don't realize exactly who you're talking to. There are shows like Undercover Boss. Has anybody ever seen this? Okay. I mean, you want a good idea of what goes on in your organization and how people really think. It's good to just kind of let them talk to you openly and honestly. I remember it wasn't that long ago, I was out with some friends here from Centerpoint and we were having a meal together and they had a, a friend with them who didn't know me. And uh, this friend asked them where they went to church, and they said they went here to this church, to Centerpoint. And they said, well, I've heard some things. I've even heard some interesting things about their pastor. And I said, really? Like what? 
Okay. I mean, this is getting good. And unfortunately, they said, well, that's him. And I was going, oh, I was about to get, I wanted to hear this. And you're saying, well, yeah, but Jesus is Lord. He already knew what they were thinking anyway. Yeah, but they didn't know what they were thinking. They'd been discussing this, and this was a teaching moment. And Jesus is the great teacher. Any parent who's been in here, you've grabbed your kids after they've jumped the bicycle over the pile of bricks or whatever, and you go, okay, walk me through this thought process here, okay? And that's important. It's an important teaching moment. And so listen to what happened. What are you guys discussing? What are you all discussing as you walk along? And the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and the other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And if you could underline that sentence. That was the big hope. Jesus was a mighty prophet, did miracles, great leader. And now they watched him die, and oh, man. All their hopes were dashed. And this all happened three days ago. And then some women from our group of of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Now some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Guys, didn't you guys ever go to Sabbath school? I mean, that would have been their version of Sunday school. Well, yeah, I mean, you you didn't hear anything about a Messiah? I mean, you hoped he was the Messiah. Did you not read any of those passages? And Jesus, of course, knew them all by heart. And there's a note in your outline. The Old Testament scriptures clearly foretold that the Messiah would suffer and die in order to save us from our sins. If you want to go back online this afternoon, we did a whole message on what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah and why that was significant. I'd love for you to go back and view that and get the notes on that and work through all of it. But to summarize, it meant that he was the anointed one. A mighty leader who would come and set things right so people and God, sinful people and a holy God, could be reunited again. And people weren't sure how that was all going to play out, and they certainly had never anticipated that the Messiah, who was going to be this great leader of God's people, would have to suffer and die. Most people had never understood that. But Jesus showed them from a number of scriptures why that was exactly the case. I don't know exactly. It doesn't list what scriptures he used. I picked three. I could have put dozens. And I struggled with... Just a few. I didn't have much space in this outline, but I gave you three. Here's from Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. This is written five, six hundred years before the crucifixion happened. Talking about the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah wrote, He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And Jesus would have been explaining to these people, do you not understand the Messiah had to come? God was laying the sins of the whole world upon his chosen servant, Jesus. He was beaten. He was whipped. You deserve the punishment for your sins, but he took the punishment because he was the only one sinless. He's the Messiah, all right? 
That's what they were talking about. And that's what Isaiah was talking about. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. Jesus' side had been pierced with a spear. The same religious leaders who had wanted Jesus crucified and wanted him nailed to the cross did not want him hanging on the cross, dying the next day when, or after sundown when their Passover celebration started. And so they went to Pilate. They asked him to be crucified. Then they asked him to speed up the crucifixion because they didn't want to see this. The Romans, they loved to rule by fear. And when they crucified somebody, they loved crucifixions because crucifixions were as intimidating as any form of execution ever devised. You could nail a person up to a cross uh, with the spikes going through their hands and their feet. And the way you died on the cross wasn't because of loss of blood, but rather because you would push up for air and then fall back down. And after you've done this a certain number, a hundred of t- hundreds of times, your legs finally gave out and then you slump forward and you suffocate. It could take hours, could take days. Screaming in agony. And there was a sign next to the people crucified. The Roman Empire rules. Don't break our laws. And then something like, have a nice day under that. But that's the way they love to do it. And they would do it prominently on a city overlooking the town or right next to the major thoroughfare going through town so everybody would know who was in charge. And the Jews said, we can't have these people hanging and screaming on a cross during the Passover to ruin the whole day. And so Pilate said, whatever. And the soldiers of the cross came and broke the legs with a lead bat of some kind, lead pipe of some kind, broke the legs of the thieves on either side of Jesus so they slumped forward and would suffocate faster. They couldn't pull themselves up. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, and so they just shoved a spear into his side. They pierced him. Blood and water came pouring out. Zechariah predicted that hundreds of years before it happened. And Jesus said, you hadn't read that? And then he pointed, I'm sure he would have pointed to Psalm 1610. Jesus had taught about it elsewhere. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And we said, well, who was he talking about? What does he mean? He wouldn't see decay. He had to die. He had to pay the penalty for your sins. He had to be whipped and beaten and pierced. God's wrath was for all the sins of the world was being poured out on his own son. And he wouldn't let him see decay And that's why you get the report now that he's not in the grave. He's resurrected. And so he showed him from the scriptures what the truth was. And that brings us to an important note also, that the Bible is trustworthy and true. When Jesus wanted to prove who he was, he went to the scriptures. Why? Because the Bible is trustworthy and true. If you want to know who the Messiah is... These things have been handed down throughout the centuries. You can know. You don't have to be in doubt. This book is trustworthy and true. Paul wrote about this to Timothy, his, the young man that he discipled in the ministry later. He said, all scripture is inspired by God. That means God breathed. It's useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. Oh, this is why we hang on to the Bible here at this church. In fact, that's the life application for you. This is right out of our statement of beliefs here at Centerpoint. The Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. The Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. 
It teaches us what's true so we know what to believe it, know how to believe it. It teaches us how to live so we know how to put it into practice. That's why every Sunday you'll find an outline like this. And somebody pointed out to me that time and said, John, your outline's really just a collection of a bunch of scriptures. You just throw in a few points in between to kind of guide the conversation. I go, you got it. I don't really care if you remember what I say. I care if you remember what God says. Because the Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice, not me. The Bible is. Now, in that blank, some people put other things. Some people will put popular opinion is our guide in all, all matters of faith and practice. Hey, if this is popular, then I'm switching my vote. If everybody says this is cool, then I think that's what's cool. And we know people like this. Not only their hairstyle, but their views on every sort of moral issue or spiritual issue. It goes back and forth with whatever public opinion says. Some people go with what their horoscope says. I've really met people who buy a car or enter a relationship based on what the horoscope says in the paper. On the day they were born, this is what should happen to you. Well, I hope I don't have to prove how crazy that is. First of all, it's on the, on the same pages as the comics. Okay, I hope you know that. All right, don't take that too seriously. But secondly, if the horoscope is right based on your birthday, I have a twin sister. I do. Her name's Emily. I hope you understand that Emily and I do not, uh, hopefully we don't have the same forecast. Hopefully I'm not going to have a baby on the same day she's going to have a baby, okay? Hope that doesn't work that way. Well, you've got to understand this. The horoscope, that's crazy. But people really put their faith in it. Some people really do. Some people put their faith in what any celebrity says. Could be Oprah. Could be somebody else. But they said it on TV. That's got to be right. So we follow them. I want you to know at this church, we are never going to change from this position that the Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. When Jesus wanted to prove who he was, he went back to the scriptures. When you and I want to know how we should live, we go back to the scriptures. When you and I want to know what's important for us to invest in and with our time and our money and our relationships, we should go to the scriptures because the Bible is our guide and it's trustworthy and true. Here's another passage that relates to this same concept, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. I love how this works out on Sunday mornings. At the end of the service here, you, if you've been here any number of times, you'll notice that we have pastors and um, elders from the church that will spread out across the front of the room to pray with people at the end of the service. And when people come up and pray, it's not uncommon at all. My wife and I will often pray together for people, and they come in and go, they just even have to catch their breath. And we go, what's going on? They go, I felt like my heart was going to jump out of my chest if I didn't come up here today. i got to get something right with God. I talked to a fellow just last week. He was on his way out the door, and he grabbed my hand and he said, I have no idea how it is that you read my emails every week, and you know exactly what I need to hear. And I go, well, it's kind of complicated, actually. No, I don't do that. I tell them, look, I don't read anybody's emails. I try to read God's word and explain it the best I know how, and then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it to your life and to mine. It's living and active. Pierces right to the heart of things. You and I can cover up our motives to even to our spouses or our best friends. Sometimes we cover up our motives to ourselves. We'll lie to the person in the mirror. You're not going to get away with that when you read God's word. You're not. And if you and I want God to reveal, our, re, reveal himself to us, we need to spend time in his word. It's why we hand out Bible reading plans. You can pick out 
You can pick up one today on your way out. If you haven't read the Bible, get to know it. It's trustworthy and true. It's living and active. It'll change your life. The Bible's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And if you're grateful for such a guide and that we have access to it in so many ways, would you say amen? I'm grateful. I mean, I've got it, the whole thing downloaded right here, a hard copy edition. I've got it on my iPad. I've got access to it on my phone. We live at a time when we have unprecedented access to God's Word. The only question is, will we read it? And will we obey what it says? Well, on Easter Sunday morning, it wasn't clear what had happened to Jesus. And so Jesus explained to these two on the road, well, here's what happened. And went back to the Old Testament Scriptures to do it. Because they were trustworthy and true. Well, about this time, and this is point two on your outline, by Easter Sunday evening, as evening approached, they finally got to Emmaus, where these two guys were staying. And it was clear by that time that Jesus, it was about to be clear to them that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. On Sunday morning, there was circumstantial evidence. The tomb was empty. Women had seen the tomb empty. Some of the disciples had seen the tomb empty. Some angels had said, Jesus is risen. People weren't sure what to make of it. But everything was about to change because now they were going to get eyewitness proof. They were going to see him and realize who he is. Well, they got to the place where they were staying in Emmaus and they invited Jesus to come join them. as is customary in Middle Eastern hospitality. And as they sat down to eat, this is joining in with the scripture reference at the bottom of your outline on the first page. As they sat down to eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them, and suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And then they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. And if you would circle that, the Lord has really risen. Not, the Lord has figuratively risen. In some forms of interpretation, it might be interpreted that Jesus might have possibly risen. No, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. To Peter, the guy who had denied him three times before the rooster crowed, Jesus had appeared to him. I mean, the, the two guys from the road who'd been on their way to Emmaus were so excited, they were going to tell everybody the great news. We've seen the Lord. We saw him. We talked to him on the road. He explained everything to us. And they got there, and, it was, and they were greeted by the 11 disciples, saying, Jesus is alive. He appeared to Peter. And so this was now something everybody was experiencing. And while they were talking about this, Jesus was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. And everyone knows that ghosts don't like fish. No, that wasn't the point, okay? The point is, he was real. It wasn't a, a mirage. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't some spectral mist. Jesus is real in the flesh. You could touch him, speak to him. He ate right in front of them. And here's an important 
note here that I mentioned just a minute ago. It's important to understand that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a real historical event authenticated by eyewitnesses. It's one thing to have the circumstantial evidence of an empty tomb. It's another thing to have eyewitnesses. You'll read of stories occasionally where someone will need to exhume a body. They're going to move a cemetery to another location or a family is going to move. They're going to take a body that's been interred and they're going to move it to a new place. And they will dig up the casket and there'll be a headstone there and there'll be no casket. And they'll have to go back to the cemetery records. Somebody put the tombstone at the wrong place. Well, just because there's no casket there, you don't assume the person rose from the dead. If you meet them while you're there, you change your mind. I think we understand that. So it's significant that the tomb was empty. That's very significant. It's more significant that they talked to Jesus and they touched his hands and feet and that he ate in front of him. This was an eyewitness account. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians because he wanted to assure them that this was no made-up story. In fact, here's what he said. Here's how he described it. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said, again, appealing to what the Old Testament had said about this. He was buried. He was raised uh, raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And if you keep reading, he says he he himself even saw him when he had a vision of Jesus while he was on the road to Damascus. Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. Not just one, not just two, but by more than 500 at one time. All the apostles saw him. They touched him. They watched him eat. They broke bread with him. He explained things to them. This was no hallucination. This was Jesus, alive from the dead. It's an eyewitness account. You say, John, you spent a lot of time on this. You sure you need to talk about this this, this much? Yes, because here's the life application. And Paul, in that same chapter, drives us home, so I'm not stretching this. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is worthless. Our faith is worthless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is worthless. Again, Paul explaining why. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. And you are still guilty of your sins. I mean, Jesus came into the world sinless, lived our lives, died death, died a death on the cross in our place, and rose again for our sake. If he didn't really die, I mean, if he didn't rise from the dead, he was just another person who died. Everyone who's ever lived is going to die. Only one person's ever come back. And if he didn't do this, then this is all just a catastrophic lie. It's a colossal fraud. And all the apostles will be lying about God. You're still guilty for your sins because Jesus said he was dying on the cross to pay for your sins. And the reason he could do that is because he was God. If he didn't rise again from the dead, he isn't God. So he's just another guy who, was a pipe, who had a pipe dream, some elaborate scheme to convince people to follow him, but he didn't amount to anything. And all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in, is in Christ, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. What separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is the resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He conquered sin, and he conquered death. He said he'd do it, and he proved he did it, and he could only do it if he was God's son. And Paul says, you know, so if you don't believe in the resurrection, the whole thing's worthless. It's just a bunch of rules of behavior. There's lots of different rules of behavior and lots of religions. We just added one more. And the truth is, if there is no hope for us after we die, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Because we don't know how many days we have left. I have a standing invitation from the funeral home here in Prattville, from one of the funeral homes, that if they have somebody come in and they have no one, uh, there's no pastor attached to the family, they have no church home, they're to call here, and one of our pastors will be glad to assist the family with the funeral. People have asked me, why do you want to do that? Because if our faith doesn't work at a funeral, when does it work? If I can give no one any hope when I'm standing behind a casket that there is, there is hope in the name of Jesus, there's forgiveness in, of sins in the name of Jesus, if we can't proclaim the gospel for those of us who are alive and remain, you need to come to Christ, what other time can we do it? I mean, understand this. Jesus rose from the dead. There are eyewitness accounts testifying to this. Because he conquered death, he knows the secret to defeating it. I don't know the secret myself. I need him to rescue me. So do you. I mean, that's the crazy thing about living in this world. Nobody gets out of here alive. We're all going to die. What are your plans for that? Jesus said, if you come to me, I'll forgive your sins and I'll give you eternal life. Trust in me. Follow me. And he proved that he is trustworthy and true by coming back. We know he knows the way to heaven and the way back and the way to rescue us because he's the one who came back and he said, I'll show you. I am the way. Now it's important for us to understand, I thought I'd just take a few minutes and do a little bit of apologetics here that there are other explanations. Some of these have been around for a hundred years or more about what happened with the account of Jesus' resurrection. Nobody argues that the church exists. There are over a billion people who claim to be Christians around the world. Nobody argues that Christians started meeting sometime around A.D. 32 or 33. Nobody argues that. And they started meeting on Sunday because it's the Lord's day. I mean, even in some... Um, languages like Russian, if you talk about Sunday, the word is resurrection day. I mean, that's how much it's influenced cultures. So something happened. Well, what happened back at that time? Well, some people said, well, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, just moved his body and then they lied about his resurrection. In fact, in Matthew, we find that that's exactly what the guards who'd been assigned to guard Jesus' tomb were told to do. The religious leaders, after they asked Jesus to be crucified, after they asked Pilate to hurry up the crucifixion, after Jesus' body was taken down and put in a tomb owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, they asked Pilate to come and put a guard around it. They said, can you seal the tomb and make it secure? Because this guy, he was a deceiver. They said Jesus was a deceiver, and he said he was going to rise on the third day, and we don't want that story circulating. So he said, go and take a guard, make it secure. So they did. Well, an angel came on Easter Sunday morning, rolled the stone away, and the guards fainted in fright. Later on, when they came and reported to the chief priests that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb, they'd seen an angel, 
and something supernatural was going on, here's what they told him to do. They said, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. They would have gotten a lot of trouble. Under Roman law, if you let a prisoner escape, if you were, if you were derelict in your responsibility, you suffered the fate of the person who got away. They could have lost their lives over this. But they were offered a huge bribe and they took it. Now, I hope you understand there are a couple of problems with this. If the disciples moved Jesus' body and lied about his resurrection and really they took the body while the guards were asleep, well, the guards' testimony doesn't mean anything. It's not easy to identify who came into your house while you were sleeping. Hey, who came into your house while you were unconscious? Oh, that person right over there. Do you always know what's going on in your house while you're asleep? I mean, how can you identify who stole the body if you were asleep? That's crazy talk. I mean, you can't do that. But a second thing that's even more important is this. Why would the disciples willingly suffer and die for a known lie? Now, I want to make something very clear. People will suffer and die for something they believe to be true, even if later on it's proven to be false. But they won't die for something they know is false from the beginning. Let me say it again. People will suffer and die for something they believe to be true, even if later on it's proven to be false. Nobody's willing to die for something they know to be false from the beginning. The guys who flew those planes into the Twin Towers in New York on 9-11, they believed that Allah was going to reward them for taking a stand against the evil here in America by destroying the symbol of power, the Twin Towers. I believe they believed it with all their hearts. Now, I believe they're, they're completely mistaken and they were wrong to do so. But they believed it. I don't believe for a minute they were sitting in the cockpit of those planes going, ah, I don't know if this is real. That's not the case. Chuck Colson, who, was one of the, who became a great defender of the Christian faith after he gave his life to Christ, was also somebody who did prison time for being part of the cover-up of Watergate for President Nixon. He said that was the most convincing thing about the resurrection for him, is that all the apostles, to a man, gave up their lives and never contradicted the story of Jesus' resurrection. He said when the investigators came in and the heat started to get turned up about Watergate, it was a rush to the prosecutor first to see who could get the best deal. When your life is on the line, you're thinking about saving your own skin. When it became clear that people were going to be persecuted and put to death for their faith, you think all 11 of these guys would stand to and go, yeah, we made the whole thing up, but I'm going down for it because I've had a lot of Christian potlucks. I mean, these potluck suppers are great. It's worth losing my life for. And that way I can also write letters to people and tell them to be honest when I know I'm lying. I mean, what was the big motive here? And so if somebody tells you, well, the disciples were just lying, for what? And why would they be willing to die for a known lie? I mean, nobody does that. A second thing that's often put forth, if you Google problems with the resurrection or other things, is that the grieving women simply went to the wrong tomb. And Jesus was placed in one tomb. It was getting close to twilight. They came back. That was on Friday night. They came back Sunday morning. They went to a tomb on the other side of the hill. They just went to the wrong tomb. And they asked the gardener, where is he? Well, he's not here. Oh, the gardener said he wasn't here. He just didn't say, well, he's right over there. Okay? Didn't say that. Well, how could you refute that? Well, all you'd have to say is this. Jesus' enemies could have easily gone to the right tomb and produced Jesus' body. 
Joseph of Arimathea was one, had been one of the religious leaders. There was a Joseph, where's your tomb? Right here. And all they would have had to do to stop the story about Jesus rising from the dead is produce his body. End of story. They didn't do that. In fact, they offered the guards a bribe because even Jesus' enemies said the tomb was empty. Nobody said, nobody said that the body was still in the tomb. It's important to you to understand also that some people have claimed that Jesus only fainted on the cross and later revived inside the tomb. He was dehydrated. He'd lost a lot of blood. He'd suffered a lot of mental anguish. He fell into a swoon and people thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. Then they placed his body, they wrapped it in burial clothes, placed it inside of a cool tomb, and later on he revived. And then when he appeared to his disciples, they just thought he had risen from the dead. Well, that's easy to believe if you're willing to believe that a horribly beaten crucifixion survivor who hadn't had anything to eat or drink for days, weakened from massive blood loss with gaping holes in his hands and feet and side, could extricate himself from mummy-like grave wrappings, roll aside a heavy stone sealing his tomb, overpower a group of Roman soldiers, walk to Emmaus and back, and then convince all his followers that he miraculously rose. I mean, that's all you have to believe to make that one true. The other thing you have to believe, if you're going to believe that is, that Jesus was a repeated habitual liar. I mean, if he didn't rise from the dead and told everybody he did, he's not a good man. He's a liar. And you can't trust anything else he said. So that one doesn't wash either. And finally, some people say that Jesus' followers all hallucinated because they just wanted Jesus to rise from the dead so badly. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise at all. They didn't get it. In fact, when he did appear to them, they thought he was a ghost. They weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They were hiding because they were afraid they might be next. And so none of it washes. And so if you're going to believe in Jesus at all, you have to believe that Jesus has really risen. And that brings us to our life application. In order to be saved, we must believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. We must believe it. I mean, believe it. Not just kind of think, well, you know, it's possible. No, you have to believe it. Paul wrote about this to the Romans. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is foundational to, the, to our understanding of Jesus. It's foundational. Again, because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's just another guy who said he could do something for us and really couldn't. But if he did rise from the dead, then he's the son of God. And if he did rise from the dead, he's stronger than the grave. And if he did rise from the dead, then he's stronger than sin. And if he did rise from the dead, then he's stronger than any problem you and I will face. And if that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Well, then why do we worry? And why are we so afraid of dying? And why do we buy into the logic of our culture today that says, store up lots of things for yourself and enjoy life while you can because you only go around once? And the Christian response would be, what are you talking about? We only go around once in this world, but we're going to live forever with the Lord in heaven. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. I just have to be rightly related to Jesus. I don't have to be afraid of dying. I don't have to drink to medicate my guilty conscience for all my sins. I can bring my sins to Jesus and he can forgive them because he paid the penalty for them on the cross. I don't have to be afraid of going to the grave. Because I know Jesus is waiting there for me and he'll take me safely to the other side. 
You can applaud that. That's the good news. It is good news. Yeah. I mean, some of you have heard me share it before. When my grandmother was 101, she broke her hip and had all kinds of health problems. Hearing was gone. Her eyesight was bad, everything. And she was laying in the hospital bed, and a young pastor who had been assigned to a church that she had been a part of came and prayed with her, and he was praying for God to heal her. He took her hand, was praying for her, and she pulled her hand back and said, you quit praying that. You pray that he'll take me home. I need a new body now. (laughs) She goes, what are you talking about? I don't want him to fix this one. I want a new one. Now, why would she get that idea? Well, she's crazy for thinking that. Unless, of course, Jesus really rose from the dead and he had a brand new body that you could touch and see. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a way that he taught his disciples to do so this morning by taking communion together. And when we take communion, what we're saying is, is we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. The night before he was crucified, yeah, actually, if you could help me put this up on the stage here, I'll let you hold those and then I'll do this. The night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered his disciples together for a Passover meal. After the meal was over, he broke a loaf of bread and passed it among them and said, I want you to eat of this. This is my body broken for you. And so they ate of it and passed it around. Jesus died on the cross. His body was broken for your sins and mine. And when we eat of this bread, in a minute when we invite you to come forward, don't come forward unless this is something you believe. There's no point in eating the bread if you don't believe that Jesus really died for you and me. After the supper was over, he took a cup of wine. He passed it among the disciples. He said, I want you to drink of this too. This is my blood shed for you. And as often as you eat of the bread and drink of this cup, I want you to remember me. So in a minute, we're going to remember what Jesus did. How his body was broken. He paid for our sins. How his blood washed away our sins. But if he didn't appear on Easter Sunday, then all this is just talk. He was just another guy who died. But if he did rise from the dead, then he is our Lord and our King and worthy of our worship and worthy of everything we have in this world. So in a minute, when we invite you to come, we invite you to come and take the bread and take a small cup and then return to your seats. During the time you're coming forward, our worship team will lead us in a song of reflection. When you return to your seats and everybody's been served, Scott will come and lead us in a little more reflection and we'll eat the bread and drink the cup together. This is a meal for those who believe. People who can confess with their mouth, Jesus is my Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Who is Jesus? He's the only one who conquered death. And that's why I worship him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray there would be no doubt in anybody's mind here this morning about what you did on the cross when you paid the penalty for our sins. There would be no doubt in anybody's mind here this morning when we talk about the resurrection that you really rose. If you didn't rise, then there's no reason to celebrate you because even though you were a a good teacher and did some powerful signs and wonders, Lord, you weren't really the Son of God. But Lord, I do believe you rose. I do believe I'm talking to you right now that you are living, that you are almighty. And Lord, there's no problem in my life or anyone else's life that you can't handle. In just a moment of silence, 
just between you and the Lord, answer this question. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Do you really believe he really rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning? If you do, then speak it in your heart. Or you can even say it out loud, Lord, I believe. If you're willing to surrender your life to Jesus as Lord, then do so now. If you've done this before, then say, Lord, I resurrender my life to you. I give you everything. Don't let me hold anything back. There's no one else worthy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.